I didn't enjoy that tonight. I believe I could listen to our singers and our musicians all day, every day, and be okay with it. We've got some of the best singers and musicians around, and I'm grateful for them and uh, what they do for our church, what they add to our worship. Uh, it's a huge blessing, and it, uh, I'm going to be honest with you, there's many times it just makes it easier to preach. Soothes your mind, soothes your heart and soul, and it adds to what I get to do, and I'm grateful for it. How many of you enjoyed seeing Brother Rodney and Sister Amy and Miss Brittany here tonight? Well, that's not Brittany. <laughs> that is Miss Taylor. Welcome. And she's home all the way from uh, Germany. And I uh, shook their hands, and Miss Amy said, you thought that was Brittany, didn't you? And that's not even fair, but uh, it's good to have it's good to have Miss Taylor home, and I appreciate her being here in service uh, tonight. How long's it been now since you got married here? Eighteen months, and uh, not long after she got married, her and Josh uh, took off to Germany. He's serving our country there, and uh, often they listen to the broadcast. I get get a message every now and then from Taylor talking about watching the broadcast, and I appreciate her. Being here tonight, it's good to see her. Amen. John chapter number 2, if you have your Bibles. I see, I, I had to tell on her because she was going to fool the rest of y'all like she did me. And uh, so, but uh, it, is, it is good to be in the Lord's house tonight. John chapter number 2. I have enjoyed John. I have enjoyed the book of John. And uh, I would ask you if you're enjoying it, but just in case you're not, I'm just going to say I am enjoying the book of John <laughs> because I don't have any, any intent of going anywhere anytime soon on Wednesday evenings except right here in the book of John. Beginning in verse number 12 tonight is where we'll find our text, verse number 12, and we'll read a few verses here, try to give you what the Lord has put in my heart. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. In case I don't get back there, that is a reference to David in the Old Testament, and John has made a comparison of the two and uh, said that it was very similar in the disciples' minds to what they had read of David. Verse 18 said, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture 
and the word which Jesus had said. Father, I thank you once more for this privilege to pray and for another opportunity, God, you've given us uh, to stand in this place. And Lord, tonight we ask your blessings upon, uh, Lord, what we've studied this day, what we've prayed over this day, uh, Lord, what we're uh, prepared to preach to your people tonight. We pray, God, that it would go forth, Lord, in only uh, a manner that you'd be pleased with. We certainly, God, don't deserve to be able to stand here, but Lord, we pray you'd take the words from our lips, uh, make them into what you'd have them to be when they hit the hearts of your people. God, that they might grow closer to you, be encouraged, Lord, in the Lord, and at the same time, Lord, that we might be challenged to be better Christians in this day and hour that we live. I ask you now once again, Lord, that only those things need to be said be said. Help us, Lord, to honor you, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kent Hughes is a fellow that I like to read after as much as I can, and uh, he put forth a question in his commentary concerning uh, these, uh, these verses. The question was one that he borrowed from D.L. Moody, and it was a simple yet very serious question. And uh, tonight, if I could, I'd, I'd pose that question to you in light of our text. And uh, the question is, what if Jesus came to land us? Or better yet, what if Jesus came to our house? What if he came to where we lived and to where we are? Keeping true to the text tonight and what John is presenting, I want to remind you that what we are dealing with and what we have been preaching on, the great doctrinal truth of the deity of Christ, his, his Godship, his uh, Lordship, who he is, and the fact that John has presented him as being the Son of God. So tonight, if the Lord would help us, I want to look here and uh, try to see the deity of Christ like we do not normally see it uh, in our minds, in our lives, in our books, and all the things that we read, the preachers that we listen to, very few present the deity of Christ or present uh, his lordship in this manner using this text. In the previous chapter, we have been reminded that one of my favorite statements about Christ was said when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. When you would have thought of a lamb, you would have thought of someone that was meek and lowly. You would have thought of a sacrifice, one that was willing uh, to be what we needed. He was a sacrifice for sin. We had just left in the, in the previous verses uh, last week, we just left a wedding where Jesus had turned the water into wine. He was a man that was presenting himself as someone that the people would want and that they were looking for. They were putting things together and, and saying, this is our Messiah, this is the Christ, this is who we've been looking for. He's coming to set up a kingdom. And uh, then our text happens. Uh, we just saw that water turn to wine, joy restored, happiness abounding. Many left believing on him, lives changed. This was and is the Lamb of God. Now, Jesus has moved through Capernaum. He's moved through quickly. Uh, it's told us in the text who is with him. He's with his mother. He's with his brethren. His disciples are with him. And, and uh, the Jews' Passover's at hand. And Jesus heads to Jerusalem. 
The Passover created a, a busy time in Jerusalem. It would have been almost like our Christmas season. Almost hate to use uh, the comparison of the two, but it would have been similar. It's a, it was a celebration, the Passover, that would have took uh, long times to prepare for. It would have took better than a month or so to get ready for Passover. Uh, it was said that roads were repaired, bridges were shored up, uh, sepulchers were rewhitened. All of these different things uh, would take place in order to get the city of Jerusalem in shape for uh, this Passover celebration. Excitement would have been high. This would have been very similar, very similar to what we see of the hustle and bustle of our Christmas holiday. No doubt as Jesus would get closer to Jerusalem, the roads became more congested. As he approached the temple, it would be even worse. And uh, my mind pictures a circus-type atmosphere as Jesus would arrive at the temple. A circus or a... Y'all have been, I know I've been with some of you, to a Panther game, and where on the outside of Bank of America Stadium, they are just congested trying to get into one of several lines, and you're trying to figure out which one to be in, and you're bumping shoulders and bodies with everyone around you, and as you enter, somebody's trying to sell you something and uh, need tickets, got them here, just commotion and confusion would have been the scene as Jesus would have come upon the temple of that day. All of that noise, all of that hustle and bustle would have given what we would call a chaotic scene. With all this in mind, we come to the text tonight. We're going to see a side of deity that few people believe that Christ uh, shows forth in his life. We have, uh, to use a phrase of a preacher I love to listen to, we have Americanized the gospel and we have Americanized and dumbed down what Christ is and who he is to the point that we do not see the full deity and the full power of God in the essence in which it is and what which is to be. We have created in America a God of love, a God of second chances. We have created in America a God that uh, is wearing sandals and long hair and uh, basically is living a hippie lifestyle. That is what we have created in America. That is the image that people will get when they think of Christ and they think of his deity. But when Christ enters the temple to find oxen, sheep, and doves being sold along with money changers who were, who were exchanging currency from one town to the other so that they would have the right money. If you'll study, you'll find out that those money changers were ripping people off. They were charging them way more uh, to change a, a half shekel into something else and then charging them again to give it back to them. And they were loading their pockets and loading uh, the temple treasury full of uh, crooked money. And that was taking place 
in the house of God. These sellers of sheep and oxen and, and doves had learned of the trade of being able to look at a lamb that maybe was brought in by someone else. And they had the ability to see that maybe this is not a perfect lamb and that it's going to get sick down the road and con people in to buying one of their lambs and again, padding the pockets of the temple treasury while doing so. Basically, what Jesus walks into is maybe one of the greatest con schemes in religious history, conning people. I don't know, maybe it's not as bad as Jim Baker and the PTL and all of that, but what we do know is what Jesus walked into was a horrific scene in his father's house. We have said that John chapter number one uh, presented Christ as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And as Jesus reacts in the temple, we are about to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And tonight, if I had a thought other than what if Jesus came to land us, I would preach to you on the Lamb becomes the lion. The Lamb becomes a lion. He is both. They are both attributes. They are both very much the personality of our God, and they both very much need to be recognized and heeded by the church when we think about how holy our God is. He is a God who cannot and will not tolerate sin. He is a God that will judge it when it is present in His Church, he is a God that will not only judge it when it's present in his church, but God will judge sin when it is present in the individual lives of believers. He will not let you continue to desecrate the things of God. He will not allow us to continue to make a mockery of the house of God. God is serious about his house. Now, I want to remind you that the Bible teaches us that we are the temple of God. While I believe very much so in the reverence and respect for this building in which we're sitting in, I, it bothers me, listen, and I, I do not touch on a lot of these things, uh, very seldom do I, uh, but it bothers me to see uh, a church that has made their foyer a concession stand and allowed the sanctuary to become a place where we eat popcorn and drink soda while the preacher is preaching and while the choir is singing. It bothers me at times to walk through the pews on Monday morning and see bubblegum wrappers and to see a lollipop wrappers in the backs of the pews. It is a troubling thing when we come to the point of desecrating the house of God and making it something besides a place of worship. That's not mean. That's just my, my soapbox. Amen. 
All of this taking place in the temple. Listen, not one of us would be happy if we walked through the front doors of Landis Baptist Church uh, on Sunday morning and found bird cages and found sheep pinned up and found uh, oxen pinned up and a man sitting there with a cash box in front of him uh, uh, saying, listen, you need to turn in your money here. Uh, let me look at your sheep and make sure it's pure. None of us would be happy uh, to walk in here and find that the house of God had been made into a, a, a place of thieves. None of us would be. Now listen, I'm, I'm probably going to preach tonight in, in uh, some of that old time stuff that we like so good. Amen? Amen. The reality is, folk, that... Uh, but somewhere along the line, somebody has changed our mind about the deity of God and somebody has changed our mind about the holiness of God and we've got a mindset that Christ uh, is that loving Christ that sacrificed and made a way uh, for us to be set free uh, and certainly he has done that uh, but that does not mean uh, that his wrath uh, does not still exist. Uh, it does not mean that he is still and uh, not the judge of all judges and the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He very much has his rules and he expects us to live by them and when we don't, he will deal with it. That is who he is. To Christ, what was going on in the temple was an outrage. It was unacceptable and God in flesh is going to handle it. God, the judge. I have uh, thought in the last few days and studied some on the, on the word sanctification and to be sanctified. And while sanctification does not uh, have anything to do with salvation, while I do not believe it is a second work of salvation, I I do believe that God uh, said, Be ye holy as I am holy. I do believe that God said, Come ye out from among them, saith the Lord. And listen, and be ye separate. Uh, I believe God expects us uh, when we get born again by His grace uh, to be different than we were uh, when we were lost. Uh, he expects us to live a life uh, that would be pleasing unto Him. And I wouldn't get into argument with you as to what that life looks like or uh, what that life talks like, uh, what I would say to you is this, uh, if it looks different than the Word of God, uh, if it talks different than the Word of God, uh, if it walks different than the Word of God, uh, then we've not yet come out from among them. Uh, we're still walking in darkness. Uh, we're still opposed to the light. Uh, and friend, when we begin to drag uh, that lifestyle uh, into the house of God, uh, it is unacceptable acceptable to him. It outrages him. It disturbs him. And you can believe he will handle that. Amen. I'm preaching tonight the same subject that we have preached for weeks now. John presenting the Son of God. Deity. Our Lord, the one we tell people 
that we love and the one that we tell people that we adore and the one that our sign when it's there says that we gather at 11 o'clock to worship uh, the one that, uh, that we sing about. I'm talking about the one that we testify. We pray in Jesus' name and we look for things uh, to happen at the name of Jesus. But do we really know Him as God, as Lord, as judge? One writer said that Jesus must have must have appeared to be seven feet tall as he began to unleash that whip on those that were in the temple. Now listen, I I don't know if you pay attention to things like this or even even if you watch TV type things of this nature, but Jesus went one against everybody else. The Bible doesn't say anything about his disciples helping him. The Bible doesn't say anything about his mother or his brethren helping him. For crying out loud, his brethren didn't even believe on him as being the Messiah until after he had already died and risen from the grave. They surely weren't going to take up arms and help him fight to cleanse the temple. They probably were in the background somewhere going, Jesus, what are you doing? Come on, man, there's more of them than they are of us. But friend, the outrage and the uproar that must have been in the heart of God when he entered into the temple and saw it desecrated and saw that they had made it a house of merchandise when it was set aside for worship must have been eating at his mind. Listen, tables crashed, money uh, changers uh, being thrown out. Total commotion as money clanged around and made the noise as he dealt with those people. Listen, verse 16 tells us Jesus' thoughts and words to the scene. He said unto them, take these things hence and make not my father's house and house of merchandise. I guess the challenge that I laid forth in the question that rings in my mind of What if Jesus came to land us? We don't have, obviously, oxen and sheep and doves for sale in the house of God. We don't even sell CDs. We give them away when people want them. We don't do those kind of things. But the issue at hand here is seeing deity for deity, recognizing that and worshiping Him as such, understanding uh, that if He walked in uh, and your mind was where uh, that it shouldn't be at that moment, uh, what would He overturn in your life? Uh, What would He throw out of the house of God uh, this night or Sunday morning uh, that's in your mind or in your heart or even physically in your life uh, that would be unacceptable to Him to be brought into the worship house of God. Amen. (laughs) Lord, help. This scene shows a side of God that no one ever talks about. His wrath and His anger are very much His attributes, His personality. (laughs) It is part of the God that we serve. The gentle, meek, and mild Jesus is a 
concept that has been overworked that many preach and teach a fellow and follow a Christ who has no resemblance to the Christ of the New Testament. It has become so... Uh, we have preached love. God is love. And listen, I, I don't want you to misunderstand me tonight. God is meek and lowly. He is a God of love. Uh, he did say, take my yoke upon you. Uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, but listen, friend, we have used those scriptures and used uh, that picture of Christ to the point uh, to where we have overlooked uh, a God of judgment and we become uh, so loose in our living uh, that should God walk into our house, House. He would overthrow the majority of what's in there and run it out of his temple. Isn't that right? <laughs> Listen, somebody asked me not too long ago, did we have a revival scheduled? And no, I don't at this point. But if we want revival, we'll hear, we'll hear what John's saying to us. Amen. We'll begin to examine. We'll begin to examine the tables of our heart. We'll begin to look at what we've got for sale and what we've bought, what we're changing out of, of godly things for worldly things. Uh, we'll look at the things we're dragging in uh, to our temple and to God's temple. Uh, he said in the Old Testament, make me a sanctuary uh, that I may dwell among them. Uh, uh, this temple and this tabernacle uh, of flesh that you and I dwell in uh, was made for the purpose uh, uh, that God may dwell in us uh, and that God may live in us. Us. And anything that's unlike him uh, is worth being cast out of his temple. Uh, anything that's moved in uh, at our hearts uh, that desecrates the place uh, where he has come to dwell uh, needs to be removed. John is displaying the deity of our Lord. Oh God. If we ever saw him really for who he is, it would scare us. I'm reminded Isaiah chapter number nine, or chapter number six, rather. Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah said, when he saw him, he said, I cried, woe is me. For I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Listen, when Isaiah saw God, when he saw his sovereignty, when he saw his deity, when he saw in God the wrath that would come down upon sinners, it scared Isaiah to death. He cried out what a wretched sinner he was. The angel flew and took the hot coals and placed it on his lips and purged him and cleansed him. Friend, I'm saying to you tonight that if we'd ever see a God like he was in the temple on this day, it would scare us to death and we'd cleanse our hearts and cleanse our lives of any ungodliness that's in them. Oh God. Have you ever... Right, let me say it this way. How long's it been? How long's it been since you just paid attention to the people around you in a public setting and listened to their conversation and watched their actions and then struck up a conversation with them 
about Christ. And you've heard the way they talk. You have heard the anger in their heart and in their minds. You have witnessed the uh, uh, the aggravation on Sunday afternoon at the restaurant. Heard a lady one time said, Dear God, if our preacher hadn't preached so long, uh, we wouldn't have to be waiting in this line. Uh, you hear uh, that conversation. Uh, and then you say, Friend, uh, I'd like to just ask you. I, heard, I can hear some frustration in your voice. Uh, tell me what he preached about. Uh, did he preach the love of God? Uh, did he preach the forgiveness of God? Oh, sir, I'm a Christian. I'm saved to the uttermost. Uh, I thank God for my church. Well, five minutes ago, you was running it in the ground. Five minutes ago, you was bad-mouthing your preacher. Doesn't sound like you fear this Christ that we say we know. Amen. About everybody you run into anymore is a Christian, they're going to heaven. Amen. That's what they're going to tell you anyway. I've never asked one person that come to me about joining the church that wasn't saved. Every one of them that said, Preacher, I'd like to join the church. I said, Are you saved? And have you been baptized? They say, Yes, we are. You'll find out six, eight, nine months later, they don't even act like they know who Jesus is. Amen. What I'm telling you tonight, what I'm trying to preach to you tonight is certainly Christ he is a, a loving Savior. Certainly He is a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of those that would believe. He certainly is that Christ that's coming back to get His children and not to leave us forsaken and forgotten. He is all of those things, but He's also a Christ that expects the things in the temple to go according to the way that he's lined them out to. He expects our worship to be that worship. Not, not thinking, wonder how long he's going to preach. Or even this. Now, you can say this honestly about me. I've heard him tell that story a hundred times. You never know when there's one that happened. Yeah. Or maybe you never know the one that finally gets the illustration that's trying to be made. And they say, oh, I get it. I get it. I'm not, I'm not crazy. I know I don't have but so many stories. And I don't like taking illustrations out of books if I can help it. I like to use things that I know really happened. Amen. That's why if you want to know the answer to the question that I use my stories because I know they really happened. And I don't have to tell you something that could be a lie. Listen, while Jesus is all of these things, He's still God who will not tolerate sin. Listen, Mark 3 and 5 says, When He looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. He was angry at Pharisees. He was angry at people that said they had religion, but they knew nothing of the things of God. They did not recognize Him as the Messiah. And the Bible said He was angry at the hardness of their hearts. There was nothing gentle here. He displayed anger. Luke 13 and 32 
as sending a message back to Herod, here's what Jesus said, you go tell that fox. He displayed something for Herod other than love, other than gentleness, other than meekness. The lamb had became the lion. Listen to me, listen. We've all got sins that we seem like we just can't get over. That we just, I mean, it just plague us and bother us and we've probably asked God to forgive us of them 52 times. And my question is, what if Jesus came in your temple at the very moment you were committing that sin? Would you expect him to say, oh, bless it. I know you struggle with that. God love you. It'll be all right. I'll, I'll let you by. I won't, I won't deal with you about that. I'll, we'll let it slide tonight. Do we expect that? I believe sometimes that sin uh, that so easily besets us, uh, uh, that sin that typically uh, drags us down, that sin uh, uh, that we can't get over, I believe we've developed a mindset about that sin. We may not say it out loud, uh, but somewhere in the back of our mind, we have developed a mindset that says, well, God will forgive me. He always has. And we have created a Christ that does not exist. Because that is not his mindset about sin. Amen. Yes, he will forgive us. But no, his mindset is not we'll let it slide one more time. Amen. You know what they used to tell me when I was a boy? You play with fire, you're going to get burnt. You know what I found out? If you play with fire, you're going to get burnt. Amen. I'm telling you, we live in a culture. We live in a culture where sin is accepted. We live in a culture where it's all right to shack up. We live in a culture that says you can love anybody you want to love, whether it's a man or a woman or whatever, two men, two women. We live in a culture that accepts that. And somewhere in the back of our mind, we have accepted that you can still be saved and live like that. Friend, I've got issues with that. The Word of God says that's an abomination. And God will not tolerate that. And if you can live in that kind of sin uh, and you can repeat that over and over again uh, without any conviction, uh, without any chastisement on you. Uh, you are not a child of God. Uh, you are a rebellious sinner that needs to be saved. Amen. Oh Lord. Jesus is just simply cleansing his temple. He has moved from the wedding at Cana where great miracles had happened. People were rejoicing that he had come. And now they're seeing a side of him that they may not recognize and that they may not like or want. But listen, you go tell that fox, he said. Listen, in Matthew 23 and 27, he called the Pharisees whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. In verse 33 of the same chapter, he called them serpents. Uh, he said they were a generation of vipers. Uh, and while the scene uh, was chaos, Christ demonstrates uh, his sovereignty by taking back control of his father's house. Amen. He said, I will not allow you to make my father's house a 
house of merchandise and a house of evil. God help us. <laughs> Simply put, this was religious irreverence toward God the Father. A friend of mine down in Alabama is a huge Alabama fan, roll tide, God help him. And uh, he posted today what our world has come to believe God is and what our world has come to believe Christ is. And it is the cross on a Crimson Tide t-shirt with things on one side about Christ and things on the other side about Alabama football. And uh, he, made, he made the statement that I believe to be true. It is irreverent and sacrilegious. It is irreverent and sacrilegious. That they would put football and Christ on the same cross. It is sacrilegious. And friend, listen. While we have conversations uh, in the church house that are all always not about, they're not always about uh, Bible, they're not always about those things, I understand that. Uh, but whenever those things take over, what's being preached in the pulpit, when they move the Word of God out uh, to talk about things other uh, than the Word of God, uh, when we get in the pulpit uh, to celebrate uh, worldly things and ungodly things, uh, then we have become sacrilegious and ungodly in the place of worship. And it is irreverent to God the Father. This temple in the Old Testament, it's where the glory cloud had rested. The actions, their actions denied what the purpose of the temple really was. It was the place where God dwelt. It was the place where God was recognized to be in the house. From the outside of the temple, you would know God was there by the cloud resting upon the temple, by that pillar of fire by night resting upon the temple. It was recognized by the community that God was in the house. But not when money changers and sheep salesmen and Goats and cattle and doves were in the house of God. The glory cloud wasn't present because they had turned his house into a house of merchandise. Oh, Lord, friend, I, I don't know. I, I, I battle sometimes in my mind about, about the way things used to be and the way things are now. And... and uh, Sometimes I don't understand all of it, Brother Johnny, just to be honest with you, there were so many things uh, that I could listen to from days gone by that when I listened to the way they interpreted Scripture, uh, sometimes I think that's wrong. How did, how did God help them when that was wrong? But then at the same time, I look back into the pages of history and I see where God's glory cloud uh, uh, sat down on the church uh, and the church grew and the church had power uh, and sinners were being saved and, and born again by the grace of God. And I wonder, will we ever, will we ever see that in the house of God again? 
How do we get that? It's not by, it's not by dumping a good, sound, biblical, theological preaching and to go back to things that were wrong. But what it is about is cleaning up our temple, getting the junk out of our lives, clinging to the God of heaven, recognizing him as a holy and righteous God who will let his wrath be known if we don't line up. Then we might see that glory cloud sit down on the house of God once more. We have accepted so much junk into the church that it's almost impossible for God's glory to sit with us. Isn't that right? Listen, I'm not preaching tonight to be mean or ugly. I'm trying to preach you what John presented as our, our God, a God that will not tolerate his house to be desecrated, a God that will not tolerate a wickedness to enter in out of this place of worship that he has set aside for that purpose. Oh God, just religious irreverence, this glory cloud set down our day has reduced God to be much less than what He really is. He is presented of a God who relates to people. And in doing this, we empty Him of His deity. When we present Him as a God that is just a, a friendly guy that'll help you through life's trials and troubles and He'll hold your hand the whole way, we have relinquished His deity. We have emptied Him of being that God that will judge. Oh Lord. The result is this. It is contemporary idolatry. That at its core is a distortion of God. Into a man made. Mental image. Of who we think Jesus. Really is. Our world. Our culture has a vision of Jesus walking down the shores of Galilee with flip-flops and long hair, using words like dude and hey man, and that's cool. We have, we have brought Christ down to the level of society and stripped him of the deity that is him. Listen, one of these days, the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon this world without mixture. What does that mean? It means full wrath, no grace, no mercy, no long-suffering, no gentleness, no meekness, no kindness, no love. All wrath and anger. And I am convinced... I am convinced that when that happens, there's still going to be church members that will feel that wrath, that will experience the anger of God. Why? Because they believed in a man-made image, a man-made idol of Jesus that was not really Jesus. 
I have to place the fault of the majority upon that, upon the majority of pulpits in our country. Just presenting Jesus as a loving shepherd that'll never hurt or harm or never do anything bad. He'll never cause any grief to come upon you. He'll never cause anything bad to come into your life. Friend, I, I don't know. I don't know what Bible some people are reading. Because that's not what he says. He said, yea, all that live godly shall suffer persecution. God said in the Psalms in chapter number 119, he said, God is faithful. Surely we can shout about that. But he said he's faithful in affliction. Ask Job if God will let any bad things come into your life. But we have presented, we have, we have learned to believe in a Christ, in a Jesus that has no anger, that has no wrath, that just lets anything slide. This man-made idolatry uses language like the man upstairs. They use language like the man, the big man up in the sky. It's not the God I worship. Those phrases are born out of ignorance and a wrong understanding of who God is. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, when the loss of the knowledge of who God is settles in on irreverent, uh, an irreverent spirit begins to, let me back up. When the loss of the knowledge of who God is settles in on, ir, on an irreverent spirit, that spirit begins to take root in our lives and such an attitude restricts our ability to worship. When we reach the point that we lose knowledge of who God really is, that irreverent spirit will settle in on us. It'll make us believe that God lets anything go and we will not worship any longer the way that we once did. It'll change. We've become desensitized to the greatness and holiness of God because of an irreverent spirit and an idolatrous concept of God. These are quotes that I've written down from other men. The realness of our worship matters because it shows what we really think of our God. The realness of our worship demonstrates what we really think of God. Half-hearted worship shows we have a half-hearted love toward God. A mocking worship shows that we have a mocking mindset toward the things of God. A questioning the reality of someone else's worship shows that we have a questioning spirit and we have a spirit of unbelief in us that God would actually touch somebody the way he's touching the person across the aisle. Irreverence toward God is only a symptom of the idolatrous image of God that is man-made. The irreverence is just a symptom of us worshiping a Christ that we do not see as holy 
and righteous as we once saw him. As we once saw him. Let me give you this example. I started not to give it to you, but I'm going to. I'm just going to give it to you quickly, and I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. Has anybody seen the little phrase on social media that said, uh, Santa Claus has been watching you, and this year you're getting clothes for Christmas? Anybody seen that? You know, because their pictures on Instagram and their pictures on Facebook, they're, they're half-dressed, and they're telling everybody how much they love Jesus. And, and uh, they don't, you know, y'all have seen that, right? I saw one, I saw one that had the caption, bikini season on it. And I'm going to tell you, here's the thought that crossed my mind. And I'm just, I'm just going to tell you honestly, the thought that crossed my mind. If a woman that put that picture on social media were changing clothes and a man walked in on her, she would scream bloody murder. And in that moment, she would probably have on more clothes than what she wears to the beach. You follow what I'm saying? And the reason I even say this is there was a time, there was a time when that was unacceptable. But our culture has adapted to that. Now listen, I, I don't... You know I don't just town that stuff and I don't preach on I'm just trying to give you an example tonight of how, that, how that, that symptom, that irreverence has taken root and taken hold amongst the people of God because of an image of Christ that is man-made that says he's all right with this. He's okay with that. And we have emptied him of his deity. We have brought his holiness down to a low level. When we reverence him, it displays a belief that God is great. It displays a belief that God is awesome. It displays a belief that God is powerful and that he is powerful in judgment. Finally, and I'm done tonight, you know that we need each other. We need each other to teach each other. We need to remind each other the proper view of Christ. Remind each other the proper view of God and His holiness. Do you know there's some weeks that seemingly in my mind, I know I'd get through them because God said He'd never leave me or forsake me, but my flesh sometimes says I'll never get to the end of this week. And did you know sometimes if I, don't, if I don't shoot a message to Matt and let him shoot one back to me, that I feel like I wouldn't have gotten through that day if I hadn't got to talk to him for just a minute. Some days to just be able to shoot Brother Jeffrey a message and him shoot a message back to me feels like the very thing that got me through that day. Because most of the time in those messages, it'll be a verse of Scripture recited or there'll be uh, something said about the goodness of God uh, that will remind me and may remind you of the God that we serve and how big He really is. I mean, how big He really is. He said this earth is His footstool. And we're wringing our hands. We're wringing our hands. 
John has presented a picture of deity in our text tonight that is not often seen. He has presented a God to the people not to, not to bring fear into the people, but rather to demonstrate to the people who God really is. And while He loves you, and while He saves you, and while He keeps you, He will also judge your sin. And He will also... Now listen, He did that at Calvary. I understand that. But friend, He's not just going to let you walk around as His child in habitual open sin and not chastise you. It just cannot happen. I've preached a long time tonight. I know that. But that's what was in my heart to give to you. And uh, listen, that ain't one of those, I understand, that ain't one of those happy messages that we go back to work on Monday and say, glory, what a blessing it was to be in church last night. But if all of us, including myself, would get hold to who Christ really is, we would go to work tomorrow rejoicing that we saw Him high and lifted up. And we'd rejoice in the fact that we saw ourselves for who we really are. And we're able to ask the angels to take a hot coal off the altar and purge our lips and make us right with Him, it'll be better after a while if we'd see Him for who He really is. Amen. Here's the phrase people say often, only God can judge me. I've seen it on stickers on the back of vehicles. Only God can judge me. I've heard Christians say it. Judge not lest you be judged. Only God can judge me. That statement itself ought to scare us to death. Because not only can He judge us, He will judge us. And if you belong to Him, there is a penalty for sin. There is a penalty for sin. Tonight I've Done my best to give you what the Lord has given me just going down to the next series of verses in the book of John. And uh, there was no great miracle to preach about. There was no rejoicing in this text to preach about, at least in the minds of those people that were cast out. There was nothing glorious to tell you of except the Savior, the Redeemer, our Lord and why should that thrill us? Because one of these days he's going to turn over some tables of this world. One of these days he's going to put a stop to sin. One of these days he's going to cleanse the temple. And we're really going to worship him. We're really going to worship him. Brother Johnny, I, this, this sounds terrible and somebody certainly will hear it and they'll misunderstand it and they'll hold it over my head somewhere down the road. But truly, I don't know in my heart if I've ever worshipped the way that I could if my temple were cleansed. Now, some of you may have, but I doubt it. 
I don't know that I know anybody that has ever really worshipped him for who he is. And the reason why I say that is because there's too many things in our temple. We'd worship God just fine up till 12 o'clock, but at one, the ball game comes on. I've got to get lunch before I get home. There's something in the temple, something in the temple that'll hinder your worship. Something's there that'll hinder your worship. Let's stand to our feet. I'll be here all night if we don't. I believe I've said what needs to be said tonight, so if you need the altar, it's open. I will not, I'm not going to woo you, guilt you, beg you. I've preached what the Lord has put in my heart, so if you need the altar, you come.